Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 450 based just on numbers. We don't take decimals into account. Uh, but I can tell you that this is another quarter quell episode, which is an episode that I should explain because maybe you guys, maybe this is your first one. Every 25 episodes, we mm. come together and at first we outlasted the Hunger Games, which this was named after. But <laughs> uh, Hunger Games oh, was we started this gosh. before the Did, Hunger we Games. Are recording, we, are recording this, we are recording this episode in the same week. Uh, sees the release of a uh, true. surprisingly good. You're incorrect. New. Oh no, it's not. It, it does come out next week. The, the embargo comes this out week. this week. The, but the embargo, the review embargo, is this week, which is all that matters to me. Comes out this week. But there is a new Hunger Games movie, so it is appropriate. The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, and David likes it. And what it's, world it's, we it's, live it's, in? The year is 2023. Good. David loves the Hunger Games movie. Oh, God. <laughs> Let's flash back to our first quarter quell and try to explain that. Speaking of the first quarter quell, we decided to have uh, quarterly episodes where you would get to know us more as people and not just necessarily talking about current pop culture. Uh, that first one, the Opkino uh, original quarter quell. We we're recording this on Monday, November 6th. That one was on a August day in uh, 2011. Uh, oh it has been 4,445 days since we recorded our first quarter quill. <laughs> it feels like it. I gotta be honest. <laughs> <laughs> We've survived all of them. Good for us. We did. Oh my uh, god. This quarter quell I'm calling uh, the not for you on paper quell. Uh, we might come up with a better name as we You're proceed wrong. with this episode. Okay, good. <laughs> what we've done is uh, the three of us have assigned four. a movie to the the three of us oh, have assigned okay. a movie to the fourth that they would apparently not like on paper. So we'll be talking about four movies. Each movie will be paired with a person who on paper would not like this movie. And what we've decided to experiment with is maybe paper isn't everything. Maybe you need to see the actual goddamn movie before you judge yeah, it. Yeah, I think there's a or hopefulness maybe not. to this uh, quarter quill that, is, we, is. that we believe that we know each other so well that we could pick something that would on paper sound not good that you might still enjoy. There's hope here. We don't aim to talk about movies we hate no, on this podcast. No. We just end up doing that often. <laughs> What? I think less often yeah. than when we were all going to press screenings regularly and we're like, Just man, this X-Men movie's a piece right, of shit. Oh my god. Anymore. That's probably for the best. <laughs> yes. Did you finish uh, Five Nights at Freddy's, Katie? No! Oh god, all no. Right. All right. Just, just <laughs> Don't do that. See, we don't see everything. Uh, but, so without <clears> further ado, uh, let's kick off our four segments this week uh, right now. All right, we're kicking off this quarter quell with we're going chronological here in the movies that seem bad for our fellow uh, podcasters uh, on paper. And for Dave, 
you know, Katie, before the podcast, you're saying I came in real hot here uh, with suggestions for everyone. And we ruminated <laughs> a bit and riffed and, and we landed on the movies. But I had a pretty clear vision of what I thought Dave should watch. And I wanted to find something that maybe skewed classic, but uh, soured a bit politically and and find something that Dave would think was morally reprehensible on paper. Um, so I asked Dave to watch Dirty Harry, the, the Don Siegel 1971 <laughs> thriller starring Clint Eastwood as uh, Dirty Harry Callahan. This is a this is a this is a famous film. This is a classic of uh kind of the action <laughs> thriller genre of, of the 70s, clearly playing preying on uh Eastwood's Western upbringing and and his kind of man with no name kind of rejiggering that into the 70s badass mold um and and dave you'll have to tell us a little about what it's about but uh i have to imagine <laughs> just uh, katie i think i saw you post this on, on letterbox that uh ebert actually called this movie fascist in his review of the time is that is that right or yeah uh, in the early 70s you could see why because uh they loosely you know, take the history of the Zodiac killer, kind of graft it onto <laughs> this man with a gun narrative and let Eastwood be a total badass. And there's a lot of good set pieces and there's a lot of interesting like seediness and mood. And there's a lot of shadow going on in this movie. I think the cinematography is pretty cool. But at the end of the day, it's a man with a gun and he wants to solve all his problems with a big gun, which I know Dave loved. Dave, and he doesn't want your stinking Fourth Fourth Amendment. Now I will say this: <laughs> Dirty Harry Callahan, he does not like the police either. So maybe he comes all. No, it ends with him throwing down his police around. badge, which it seals from an existing. And maybe Western. Dave loves this movie because Dirty Harry is a cab. Dirty Harry is. <laughs> Dave, That's, what do you think? What a way to kick Dirty it Dirty Harry, does it hold up uh, for you? Does it hold up in time? Dirty Harry doesn't hold up for me. Here is why my overall thought when Dirty Harry ended was, yeah, I get it. I get why this movie in 1971 uh, did what it did and then spun out into a franchise slash a, uh, you know, a avenging good guy with a gun uh, run of films that we had for a while. A lot of the problems that I have with like the way that police are currently shown in media is uh we're very far distanced from not very far distance but distanced enough that like uh a lot of the uh examples you see in mainstream media these days about crime being up are being like uh minusculely up in a certain way like overall uh crime's been going down since like the, the mid 90s uh so just a way of talking about like uh I, I didn't mind, even though I hard side-eyed uh, how popular in the early 2000s superhero vigilantes uh, like Tony Stark and fucking Bruce Wayne were, uh, because that, I feel, is just as bad as a, as, you know, a police vigilante. Uh, here at the beginning, though, of the American 1970s, that is a period of time that I've described on other podcasts as a fan of true crime is basically like serial killer heaven like policing was really far behind uh where it needed to be to be effective uh you had um you know uh people were still hitchhiking and putting themselves in stranger danger 
all these sorts of things definitely existed. I, I realize it's pressure on the American psyche. So I see where Harry Callahan comes from. And I see why, you know, they were like, let's let Frank Sinatra play this part until Frank Sinatra turned it down. And eventually they ended up with Clint Eastwood. It is a compelling narrative to think that it's true. It feels like 24 to me where uh, they make Scorpio, the bad guy based on the Zodiac Killer, so extreme that in the end he is like hitting children on a bus full of children that he's kidnapped and he's gonna maybe kill them all. Uh, we've already been told by uh, Detective or Inspector Harry Callahan that he's gonna do it again because he fucking likes it. Uh, we've seen him getting uh, pay, pay a large black man to beat him up so he could uh, accuse the police of police brutality. It's all plotting to make sure that we're on Harry Callahan's side. And as a story, it works. So even though my critical mind is able to be like, well, that's a piece of shit, or like, how does robbing a bank mean he automatically gets to shoot to kill from his hot dog uh, <laughs> diner um, really early on, or it's just like, oh, they're, they're <clears throat> robbing the bank. They must, I get to kill them now. That's uh, like the trade-off you make with the law. Those things still played as kind of ridiculous but the structure of the movie around that narrative sort of saves i think the half-baked narrative some fantastic uh aerial photography of san francisco some really uh artfully planned out and framed night scenes uh for being shot on film in 1971 uh the chase uh that harry has to go on from uh payphone to payphone to eventually deliver the money to get the poor woman out of the hole that she's suffocating in uh, are all very compelling elements to a thriller um, and not even trying not to be compelling just like straight on thriller editing unlike something I saw this the same week I saw uh, David Fincher's The Killer which mm. uh, is similarly David Fincher the uh, Zodiac vibes the Zodiac influence in this of the actual oh. killer not the movie oh definitely well I mean it also has some influences I think on the movie like I, I don't they didn't have the technology to do time lapses of the city changing, but that wouldn't feel out of place at the beginning of yeah. uh, Dirty Harry, um, because this is definitely a guy at the beginning. They're treating him like a fossil because he is shooting bank robbers to kill and they're very happy about that. But they're also he's like mouthing off to the mayor and people are like, this isn't how things go, Harry. Um, and then I was, so I was on this where I'm like, cool, he's a Jack Bauer. He's in a ticking time bomb situation. Those don't exist in real life. Uh, it's a, you know, fictional misnomer to think like the ends justify the means because the means are Scorpio as a bus full of kids. Uh, but then I started to actually just like take the movie on face value twice. He like loses a suspect or gets beat up cause he's peeping at boobs. Like that's why he's dirty Harry. I was like, <laughs> yeah, great. This guy's an asshole. And like, just because he gets results, he gets, uh, you know, very upset while uh, the, the, a judge and the attorney general chew him out after he manages to uh, find Scorpio and the, uh, the very important evidence gun without a warrant uh, just by tracing leads and then beating the shit out of a dude. Uh, so the, the rationality is there, but because it's a thriller movie, because we want to get to the point where Scorpio is on a bus with a whole bunch of children and he turns the corner and fucking Harry's standing on an overpass and everyone's like, oh, fuck, here we go. And he's going to jump onto the bus. Thrilling sequences. 
I see why we get there as a fiction. Uh, but much like I am not trying to join the uh, counterterrorism unit or uh, build a bulletproof or flying suit for myself to fight crime, I do not empathize with this man. But as far as like 70s thrillers go, like at least they're like this dude's an asshole. They put the most racist shit in his mouth because we know he's an asshole. And the movie kind of laughs it off as like, ah, oh, he gets results. But that doesn't mean that he's not an well, asshole. So, so I was able to keep that's my what I wanna, moral I center. Wanna, I'll pick at that a little bit and hear from everyone else too, which is, is maybe this is too much of 2023 looking back, you know, trying to reframe this classic movie to allow it to continue existing in the pantheon of action thriller. But like, is the movie a, critical of Callahan? Even in the end, does it is it valorizing him completely, or is this dimensional enough that he that the movie is critical of him, even as he saves the day? That he that the only way to stop Scorpio is Callahan breaking the rules, but by breaking the rules, he is rotting the system of authority that he supposedly serves. Like it's it's bad that he's a bad really, cop, right? You- but do you really think the movie is concerned about him like tearing apart that system? I don't think don't that think it, it is. is. I think it's like, yeah, we need a good and righteous man who knows what he's doing to stop these incompetent, incompetent bureaucrats from ruining but justice. They don't seem wrong in those scenes. They don't. They don't seem like goofy and over the top. They seem measured no. and reasonable. Like, hey, you can't just go in to someone's house and like find the evidence without a warrant. You can't beat someone up and interrogate them. They also don't them. seem any. They also don't seem any fun. Well, like, no, you would much rather be around Harry fun? than around those I guys. I don't find the scenes with him to be fun. What scene is fun in this movie? I mean, if this movie wasn't fun, it wouldn't have the, like, staying oh, power it does. It's like, not like, fun, fun in is the way that something people like, want... It's not fun the way that something like <laughs> Bullet was fun. Uh, right. You know, to think of a movie mm. of a similar Like, the kids in Chopping Mall want to be Dirty Harry for a reason. There yeah, is a fun I mean, element we'll to that. it. We'll that's, that's the dangerous part of it. And with Ebert saying that's like a kind of a fascist movie, this is a movie that you can read the wrong side of. Uh, but I don't think that the movie forces you to read the wrong side of it, if that makes any sense. Because like you were saying, Patches, they lay out why what he did was wrong. And we're supposed to be like, yeah, go fucking get him, Harry. But at the time, I was just like, yeah, you fucked up, Harry. This- like, don't you, <laughs> you're, you're the senior cop. You are the senior cop. Why is this news? Why is any of this news to you? And he's like, well, I thought because, you know, he buried a naked woman that all bets were off. And it's just like, I, I don't think this movie necessarily takes a stand. I think the throwing the police badge away and the behind the scenes story of how that was in and out and Clint Eastwood didn't want to do it. Ultimately, that gives enough nuance to the end of the movie uh, to make him like not necessarily speak for the police. Right. So I don't think this is, I, I think this is a vigilante movie that the vigilante is an asshole. So I, I like, it would worry me more if we were presented with this narrative as being realistic, but almost all the times that we're presented with the cop overstepping their bounds, it's not presented like this was the only way to stop them. We I mean, aged it's also out a movie the as Quentin Tarantino has defended it, you know, at, at length, especially in his book, Cinema Speculation. Uh, a movie about a world that was not prepared for a new class of criminal. And Dirty Harry is, is kind. He frames Dirty Harry as sort of being, or Harry Callahan as being a 
um, embodiment of a society that is sort of at a loss for answers as to how to deal with this new breed of criminal. Um, and he's sort of the prototype uh, for better or worse, you know, with all the warts and all um, with fascistic tendencies and you know, plenty of racist thoughts. Uh, uh, but it was also an, uninvo- an unevolved time. Um, he also writes in cinema speculation about the moment where he sees the or Scorpio sees the two men in what Tarantino probably falsely refers to as like the first consensual man on man scene in a Hollywood film or I mean, I mean that con that statement kind of falls apart if you think about it for a second, but whatever. I'm paraphrasing a book that I read a year ago. But I wouldn't say this movie is especially uh, respectful towards the No, but what he what he is saying point. is that he when he was uh seeing the movie when he was younger, he remember the audience laughing of being uncomfortable at that moment and later looking back on it, detecting a kind of insidious um, homophobia. This was aberrant behavior and they're rooting for Scorpio to wipe it out. Um, But I think it's kind of a movie that's set at the dawn of a a new world um, where, you know, culturally, America was shifting, going progressive. There was this kind of new breed of criminal emerging. This was and is often credited as being sort of the first modern serial killer movie. Uh, and it was difficult for audiences, let alone the police characters in this movie at the time, to fathom a criminal who would operate with that sort of sadistic glee um, and would want to blow up school buses full of children and so forth. Um, and, you know, he's framing Harry Callahan as yeah. sort of like the, the 1.0 solution to this problem. Um, right, you, you could imagine I, they, in, at, at the time in 1971, people being like frightened by Scorpio and, and rooting for Callahan to like break the rules and take this guy down. But the movie I found this time rewatching it is so like structurally sound, and maybe this is a testament to Siegel or the mm-hmm. the the trio that wrote the the screenplay. But even in the beginning, when Callahan's breaking up the the bank robbery and you know, holding the one guy who's already down at gunpoint and does his big, you know, did I fire six shots or only five? Do you feel lucky, punk? <laughs> this time around, I mean, obviously that has taken I, on a huge legacy. And I, I wonder how much we think about that moment through the lens of like, this became a franchise. I've never actually seen the other Dirty Harry movies. I have not seen Magnum Force, the Enforcer, Sun Impact. Um, but I, I that in that scene this cool. time, I, I was just like, Callahan is unhit. Callahan is psycho. You know, this guy, I now I feel really bad for this uh, bank robber. And like this movie is structurally sound, like it's criticizing Callahan. And luckily, years and years and years after the serial killer movie has become a thing and we're familiar with these types of criminals, this movie is just as much about an, an unhinged cop who cannot follow the rules and it just loves to kill and loves to fuck with people uh i think it has taken on a critical edge i think it has become part of the text now that we have more like cinema behind us sure but i think it's caused a lot of damage in the intervening time of a lot of people who are like i'm going to take justice into my own hands i'm going to have a gun and i'm going to be dirty hairy in my suburban neighborhood there's a lot of movies like that not that that is the movie's fault but i think it makes it really I think it inspired a lot of a lot of movies and a lot of actual people. So I yeah. I think if we can watch it now with an eye toward like thinking that he's a, like a kind of a bad guy, I don't know that that. I imagine the, the sequels don't help with that critical lens. Right, right. The sequels probably doubled right. out because this is actually this. Yeah, I think this is pretty well balanced structurally. 
Uh, two things kind of helped me with that. One, uh, Andy Robinson as Scorpio is great. I was like, how do great. I know this fucking guy? He put on a ski mask. I'm like, that's Garrick. That's Garrick from Deep Space Nine. So I was like kind of <laughs> on Garrick's side for like uh, half the movie until, you know, the, the kids uh, stuff. Uh, because just like it's he's interesting. He's played interestingly. Uh, the second thing is like, yeah, I can't think of an actual political decision that was motivated by television or pop culture that I'd get behind at all. Uh, like if you're if you're on the Wikipedia page, uh, they have like a section that's something like called copycat crimes or real life copycat crime and killers. And I was like, OK, here we go. Dude with a gun. It's not. It's failed, like, ransoming of children and burying people alive. Like, that's, it's, we don't look back at Seven and they're like, and now everybody's doing Seven Deadly Sin murders. Sure. Uh, so I, I feel like I, I the, the audiences of the time can absolutely be held responsible at the time for taking the wrong message from a movie. I have a hard time holding audiences at the time responsible for historically American gun violence yeah. just going dirty hairy movie posters no, that's have probably true. done more damage than the film dirty hair yeah right. that's i mean that's the like it's like fight club you know like fight club the concept of it did a lot more damage than the actual text of the movie yeah so i'm i would i would maybe start a dirty hairy sequel just to see where it all went wrong because i had assumed patches correctly that this is where shit started going wrong in cop portrayals uh, and with Clint Eastwood, honestly, and now maybe maybe it goes no, wrong Dave somewhere wants else to be a because cop. this is, this seems like he saw this movie. It seems pretty seems like a pretty solid uh, thriller. To You're me. back on the side of authority. I am genuinely surprised that Dave liked it. I I think my distaste for it as like my modern day audience self, which is not necessarily the fairest way to approach it, really kind of kept me on the outside of this one. Yeah, it's not like. I don't see how, no I might as well say it and then try to talk myself out of it because I thought it it's not like birth of a nation where I have trouble watching it because there are like fucking there's there's non-idiot characters trying to tell Dirty Harry he's an idiot and sure. I don't want to give him over protagonist credit just because he's the one we know the most about so I think there is a balance from my understanding of reading like very cursory making of uh, information a lot of that uh balance uh existed more and then was maybe a little bit more satirical he's a bad cop on the heavier end and they sort of ended up trying to uh hit a middle ground uh, at the behest of clint eastwood and i i think it mostly works it might be the reason the sequels might be worse is this is probably a hard balancing act to keep pulling off uh to yeah. be like well, this time we needed a vigilante. It's like you're going to have to escalate and escalate until eventually he's like facing a James Bond villain. We're like, yeah, okay, now you could kill him. Yeah. Uh, but Scorpio, what a what a what a villain. What a, a cinematic serial guy. killer. Just a wacky Big dude. Big clown. David, I'm gonna cop to uh, picking this movie for you. Oh. Um, uh, no pun intended, uh, but I definitely did all pick puns it. Intended. Yeah, all, all puns intended. 
first question when it's like pick a movie that David Ehrlich uh, doesn't like on paper, uh, it would be very easy if one of those papers was your reviews. Uh, but we're trying to pick something <laughs> you haven't seen. Hey! Uh, only only uh, my mom is printing out my reviews on actual paper. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, so I picked this uh, Julie Corbin produced 1986 film that I didn't catch uh, because uh, you were two years pick. old. A child. <laughs> when I eventually did catch up to it, another person described the plot to me, and they're like, "You need to see this movie. It's called Chopping Mall. There's." not uh, enough chopping for you to think that that's going to be important uh, because it's actually about robot security guards at a mall and some kids stay at the mall overnight to hook up with each other and the robot security guards are turned up to lethal by a lightning strike uh, <laughs> that hits their security center that's what I knew about it and that I believe is the entire plot <laughs> of chopping mall yeah pretty much uh, yeah before we get to David's, David's overall thoughts uh, Patches or Katie, did either of you have either of you seen Chopping Mall before uh, you were forced to watch it? For this? I also have never seen Chopping Mall, but was especially curious if this was a movie that David would not care for on paper. And, and uh, I am curious as it. to yeah why uh, why you thought that I wouldn't care for this. Well, I guess that's a Dave uh, thought. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like uh, on paper it is incredibly stupid, and then once you start watching the movie. I believe the tone is, uh, you know, it's not Roger Corman, but it is Julie Corman. So it's Corman-esque right at the top. Uh, and I just sort of think that you have uh, better things to do with your time than roll the dice on which uh, Corman movies this, are good. This is what I was thinking, too. That <laughs> I know I that David does have a taste for, for schlock, that he makes many ghost ship jokes uh, on, ghost on ship. microphone. More uh, like a steaming pile of ghost ship. <laughs> but I, I do know that when David has free time, that, well, I won't say your parental, your recent parental leave was necessarily free time, but you were at home a lot and you were watching, I'd say you were still watching art films during your downtime. And I, I don't really know, but yet I know that you watch cable movies on Ambien and watch them many, 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 many times, but not like this. You don't, you don't talk about yeah. watching complete schlock. Like when the horror buffs are like, I, I must watch every movie from 1982 that barely came out. That's not, that's not David. I know that he likes schlock, but not this kind. So well, I think it makes sense. I mean, it's funny that you should mention that in terms, in, in context of my recent paternity leave, because I was exclusively watching movies from the 80s, if not specifically 1982, for uh, IndieWire's 80s week um, that followed me much later. But uh, But I was watching, you know, <laughs> movies that I thought could be in contention for our list of the 100 best films of the decade. So yeah, it was not was a lot of chopping mall malls on, on the list. Chopping oh, okay. malls was actually number one hundred and one. It narrowly missed the cut, <laughs> um, and I could have been the deciding vote, and I hadn't seen it at the time. So if you'd only known, oh. only I, I was also going to say that I think this is all of us have this, but there's this kind of like instinctive distaste for the like Stranger Things eighties nostalgia that's been taking over lately. Being like, wow, remember when like malls were around and like that's, well, that's what robots you. looked like. You uh, hate that Amblin shit. Yeah, <laughs> but I think I think I think we all have some level of and this is not no, Amblin. Yeah, don't really project in your strangers thing. Stranger Things hatred on me, a diehard Stranger <laughs> Things fan who's definitely seen more than seven minutes of that show. You love the Didn't, isn't today yeah. like Stranger isn't it like Stranger Things yeah, Day? I keep on getting emails about Stranger not, Things yeah. Day. Uh -huh. What? What? Yep. 
Katie, it's just as made up as Valentine's that Day. That doesn't have to be a thing. You got no. no it's not like a national holiday, like National Pretzel Day <laughs> yeah, or something. It's Netflix, like Netflix's Netflix emails. told you yeah. it was. Yeah, you, you don't have to pre-order. It's the day when they're releasing a bunch of Stranger Things shit. Yeah, the Stranger Things stage show. There may not be a single product in all of pop culture right now that I am less interested in than Stranger Things. I'm just gonna put that out there. Stage show, right now. As to Katie's point. That's, yes. Yeah. It, yeah. So, so we couldn't assign an entire season of Stranger Things. And that would have been uh, a cruel and in violation of several <laughs> of the policies we established after 9-11 in this country. <laughs> Chopping Mall asked a lot of questions about our relationship to, you know, uh, malls and consumerism during the Reagan era. But I think it does answer. Did, uh, did we did we fully <laughs> did we fully plumb the mall genre? in the 80s and i think chopping mall says the answer is yes uh but i'm interested to hear david uh how you came away uh with your chopping mall experience well stranger (laughs) things is an interesting point of reference because i think my distaste for a lot of the 80s nostalgia as it is epitomized by stranger things comes from the gap between how cheap and flimsy that nostalgia is and how much of an unleaded high I get from the real thing. Uh, You know, it it feels like such a pale imitation when you watch something like Chopping Mall, which immediately, I mean, there's just something about the texture of the film of so many of these schlockier 80s movies um, or just the fact that they were shot on film um, that immediately sort of transports me to a suburban like duplex uh, two screen movie theater um, late on a Saturday night when there are like four cars in the parking lot. Uh, and I was not frequenting those in the eighties because by the end of the decade, I was six years old, but uh, there was definitely enough of a, uh, an afterlife that that vibe had into the nineties that I have some pretty formative memories around seeing movies in places like that and understanding what it feels like and, and going to enough, uh, screenings of of older movies in the last 20 or 30 years or so um, in places like that. They just sort of immediately conjure that vibe. And so, you know, as I have figured might happen, not that I knew anything about Shopping Mall in advance, um, just based on when it was made, by whom and its you know, budget, although by whom and its budget are sort of interrelated in this case, um, mm. I, I had a feeling that it was going to scratch that itch for me uh, of just, you know, where everything's a little bit dark and dusky in, in the way that it's shot and the synth music is kicking up the gear and you it all has a certain tone about it. And it, it much like a visit to the mall itself, it has a flavor that is larger than, um, you know, any of the individual parts that it's working with. And like that, that mood is enough to carry me for 76 minutes or 74 minutes, whatever, 76 minutes, however long this movie is. Um, gloriously short. A gloriously short <laughs> film. I would argue still probably a little too long, but um, uh, the, the last like 15 minutes or so when we're really getting to the, the chopping part the teenage, of the... Uh, the teenagers in this movie credit though, they immediately dive into action. There's not a lot of wasted, oh my God, oh my God the cop yeah. robots are coming to life and trying to kill us in the mall because just to be clear they've all decided to have a party at the like yes. Raymore and Flanagan in the mall or some <laughs> bed store <laughs> and they have nowhere to go and make out other than on a bunch of display in beds the display in the same room <laughs> I mean I think we're all nostalgic for that a little bit I would I like to I think was. that every time every time you drove past a closed mall in in the 80s there were just a bunch of 
teenagers is probably too strong a word to use in this case, but a bunch of yeah, they definitely young, look solidly twenty having sex. Uh, and there are, you know, there are many iconic scenes in this film, but I would argue maybe none more iconic than the, the Love Island-esque scene where everyone is under, on their own (laughs) beds, under different pairs of sheets, um, while the nerds watch old horror movies. Um, there's the one girl, there's the girl who's like, like he tries, he's trying to go down on her. She's like, ew, I don't do that. Yeah, it's like, lady, so, you're having sex in a room full of your friends. Right? Where are you drawing your line? She has a line and that is it. And yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what people's attitudes were towards cunnilingus in the eighties, but I would like to think that they have evolved. Um, cause she, was, and maybe they've decided to have sex outside of a furniture store. Also maybe, maybe. Then. Um, although, <laughs> that scene is <laughs> curious for me because uh, Barbara Crampton, who plays the other blonde in this movie, the first of them to die, is someone I've become sort of friendly with over the years uh, on the internet. She like will regularly comment on, uh, send me Instagram DMs and comment on photos of my kids. Oh my and God. She's like a very sweet uh, actress and she still works. I mean, she recently reviewed a new film that she's in called Suitable Flesh, in which she is very good and like, continuing to be sort of a scream queen uh, type and... Um, uh, has a knack for that for sure, and uh, it, this is definitely a d- different context for me. I mean, she's fam- most famous for doing Reanimator, which is around the same time. But um, yeah, I think she she's the second to die, right? Like she's the one who they're in the air duct yes. vent, and she's yes. like freaking yes, out yes, and yes, yes, jumps yes, them yes. out. So the first one to die is like, but she's the one in the movie who seems like she might have ever acted before. <laughs> like there, there's yes. a, there's uh, she, a performance level in that a, beyond it. She has, and this is you know not blowing smoke to someone I know over the internet so much as the fact that like it's a testament to her success in the genre clearly understands the tone of this film um and i think you can see it in the like appallingly weird docu- uh, dialogue where greg and her narrative character's name is Susie lynn greg is like you smell like pepperoni and she's like well if that's how you feel and he's like wait a minute i like pepperoni and she goes through like every <laughs> emotion that she needs to but does it with like a wry knowingness that you, you sort of she understands the the winkiness and the, the leatheriness of the material. Yeah, the, um, the tone and the dialogue is out of like a fifties beach movie or something. And yes. yet they're all in a mall. And and she <laughs> just sort of inherently gets it. And the rest of the people, you know, their faces are doing a lot of the work. Like there's that guy whose face only existed in the 1980s. I mean, it's just that, that type of face that was like vaguely Cro-Magnon and uh, shaped like an hourglass you know, with a skull with like a wide, <laughs> wide jaw and then like a narrow midsection and a huge forehead. Like, those people don't exist anymore. They're one de- degree um, away and- from, like, Wet Hot American <laughs> Summer parodies of themselves. Yeah. Um. But <laughs> a lot of people are just bringing some good face to this movie. Um, and, uh, and, and, I mean, there's so much good dialogue in this one. Now I'm on the IMDb quotes, tra- IMDb quotes page and reading things like, yeah. oh, fuck the fuchsia, it's Friday. And uh, <laughs> wait, do you? Because yeah. the moment, the moment that I knew I was at, like, when this movie opens with like the killer robot, and you realize it's a training film, you're like, oh, this is like more clever. And then it's the like snarky grownups who are sitting there talking about the robots at the demonstration. And the one guy leans over to the woman. He goes, I don't know, Mary, the one in the middle has an unpleasantly ethnic quality. Uh, yeah. I burst <laughs> out laughing oh, no. and I was like, oh, this movie gets it. Like, those I know two, exactly those two what we're doing Those people are like the here. and Waldorf of this movie. I mean, like they... <laughs> it's a uh, shame they're not in the rest of it. They should have just been watching the carnage. They should just be like Mystery Science the Theater 3000 in the bottom <laughs> left corner of the screen, just saying like pretty tired like the cabin in the uh, one-liners or something. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but it's a great way to like get you into the world of this movie really quickly and to the, that to know that it's in on the joke. I think it makes it 10 times well, more enjoyable. I, I, as I was trying to get to before I was, uh, I got off of the path of teenagers, so having, no, teenagers having sex in the, in the Rainbow and Flang. And I mean, the movie gets on with itself really quickly. Like immediately the teens go and find guns in the hobby store and are ready to fucking shotgun down these robots uh in the middle of the mall do you remember what the hobby store was named did you no, catch the please. name of it it's it's called peck and paws it yeah, is it's like a straw dog this reference. movie is wink, not wink. light on references some more explicit than others there's a shout out to like a verbalized shout out to the day the earth stood still um there are other references to movies throughout um, the, pet, the pet store is called Little Shop of Pets, which is just funny. I will say it, it was <laughs> I was surprised and impressed that in this day and age when there is nothing sort of more implicitly frightening to me than a white guy running around uh, you know, a public place with a assault rifle that the moment uh, somebody they emerge from the sporting goods store and that guy is carrying an assault rifle that like they just like full rambified within <laughs> five minutes. I laughed out loud. So, um, <laughs> well, one of them says he saw Dirty Harry 24 times. Yes, so it all, it all hey, comes together. It all connects. Uh, <laughs> they do uh, yeah. let loose with the guns really early, even though they visibly don't do anything. <laughs> no, and then they just kind of keep going. The guns are useless. The robots are indestructible. There is a funny part where they are trying to blow up that elevator and they fire roughly 400 rounds at the charge that they need to set it off. And then when they finally get it, they're like, hey, great shot. And she's like, yeah, thanks. My dad's a Marine. You're like, you wasted an entire fucking. <laughs> like, um, like I, I cannot imagine an army's worth of bullets trying to hit that one target that was like 100 feet away. Um, but man, yeah. that mall, that elevator looked exactly like the elevator that was in the Augusta Mall when I was growing well, up, the big mall that we went to, like identical. It was and starting. ditto the elevator, which uh, all these sort of open face glass designs uh, in the Stanford yeah. Mall, the Stanford Town Center, where I saw a lot of movies growing up, but. That brings yep. me to my next point, which is that it is uh, or should be considered a federal crime that the Galleria Mall, where this movie was filmed and also scenes from um, uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, uh, Sherman Oaks Galleria, or Fast Times at Ridgemont High and parts of Commando, not all of Commando, unlike this movie, Commando also goes outside at some point, um, had been shot. Uh, has, it, it's a crime that this place was sort of t- torn down. I mean, it still exists, not torn down, but it was completely redone. Um, as you might expect, most places have been in commercial real estate in the last 40 years. Uh, it is still a movie theater, even though the Regal Theater there almost foreclosed, but it is uh, it's still open. But it's been entirely remodeled. This is a piece of American film history from those three movies alone. Um, and it should have been consecrated as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And Get on it, it, Quentin Tarantino. And just because it so, so viscerally captures the feeling of mall in much the same way as, you know, Ken's job is beach. This is mall to me. And <laughs> I, uh, I, I really think it's a shame that you can't just step back in time and uh, go in there whenever you want. Um, but... And, you know, and I love uh, that it was by virtue of its budget and it just shot in that one actual location. I mean, there were two days they shot at Corman's studio. But for the most part, there's a real contig- uh, there's a real contiguity. Uh, what's the yeah, I mean, that is the word. I don't know if Con- I'm pronouncing it. I'm so continuity. No, contiguousness. Uh, yeah. 
you know, whatever. I have two small children. One of them is like barely eating right now. I'm doing the best I can. Uh, But but my Tommy gun don't. Uh, The the Home Alone 2 references never (laughs) truly will leave my fading brain. Um, Yes. What was I saying? The the, the, the coherence. This is a day when you like. The coherence of the space. I love that it's always clearly the same mall. Um, everything is sort of makes sense in relationship to where it is. Uh, and there are action shots that were done on the cheap of them running around, simply just like running away from these little, you know, trash cans with death beams on them, uh, <laughs> that feel kind of propulsive and alive just because they are mm-hmm. actually moving through physical space and going from point A to point B and you can sort of grab, grasp where they're going and map it. And, uh, and it's fun. It's simple. It's to the point. Um, it's not until Good clean fun. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a uh, question, I mean, kind of a wrap up yeah. question for you, David. Which is, we we pegged this movie, you know, on paper. We didn't think you might like it, or we didn't know if this was going to be your cup of tea. We wanted to test you. You did dig it, but I'm kind of curious where you would draw the line for like schlock as a as a good thing or schlock as a pejorative. Like, what is this? Is this movie is Chopping Mall riding a fine line between? bad and good or so bad it's good for you um or I mean, like a lot or, of roger yeah. corman movies it as we've established it knows exactly what it is i was surprised to learn that there were deleted scenes and you know when, when the movie was called kill bots there was a slightly longer cut because uh, i thought we were really sort of using all the parts of the buffalo here and that they wouldn't have wasted any film any shooting time whatsoever uh, without having it sort of go into the final product but um no, I mean, I think it's uh, if a movie is fun, then it's on the right side of schlock. I mean, I uh, I thoroughly enjoyed watching this. I do think, you know, it, it's been discussed. It was alluded to earlier in the segment that the movie taps into some of the same themes uh, about Reagan era America and human consumption and um, consumerism and whatnot as sort of some of George Romero's films. Um, that wasn't unintentional, but at the same time, I think, uh, you know, you would need you would need to do some chopping to dig deep enough to really make that that <laughs> worth your while um, to explore. Uh, but, you know, I think it, it's it's hazy relationship to trash and also to any sort of like incidental uh, or read into greater meaning is is part of what makes it schlockiness fun, that it occupies that sort of nebulous space where it gives you enough rope to hang yourself and and uh, enjoy it in different context um and i also just like there used to be you know this is schlock un- unrepentantly but there used to be an integrity to the trash that we made um it, it, it we used it, to be a proper country. we used to be a proper country <laughs> it really is that vibe i mean and a lot of it you know as we talked about ad nauseum does have to do with the way it looks and feels or is a nostalgic element to that but film itself does have a a texture that has a nostalgic pull to it, yes, but like there, there is a feeling of being less disposable. Um, and I think you know, if this movie were made hypothetically, um, in 2020 on uh, you know, a red camera or whatever the case might be, um, and just put onto Netflix, VOD, whatever it might be, I think it, you know, it, it, it would feel like a chore. Um, it wouldn't be able to straddle all the lines that Chopping Mall actually does. Uh, I think. You know, it has to have it's a certain it's heart in the right place for uh, these robot killbot things to sort of laser it out accurately. You know, I mean, I think like it has to 
it has to have a feeling of uh, integrity behind it. And I think that's something that Roger Corman has always been able to do. You know, he churns out films faster than anybody alive um, and does them on the cheap. And, you know, but there was still an element of quality control. There was still a respect for the audience and wanting to get something out of it more than just making a quick buck. Um, and wait, I want to. Yeah, that is. I, w- I mean, that's should, still possible. Yeah, please. Um, I want to hear what Patches and Dave thought of this more, but I just wanted to throw out that, like, I have a real soft spot for Roger Corman, too, even though horror is not ever my thing, as we know. But, like, I saw some of his movies in college and kind of talked about him as an independent filmmaker and just, like, everything you said about there being the spirit of, like, let's put on a show, let's, like, do what we can with what we've got. There is a warmth to them, even though there's no, like, actual textual warmth in Chopping Mall. And um, I think that's one of the things that I, I really liked about this one. Patches, just tell me real quick. Did you have fun? I, I mean, I had a good time. Did you like Chopping I, Mall? I had a very good time. They, the robots have tasers. Dave, I like that. did you have a good time watching Chopping Mall? I always have a good time watching Chopping Mall. Uh, it never outlasts its welcome for me. And I'm glad that uh, at least it made it through one screening with David Ehrlich. But it's a great pitch to somebody who wants to watch something dumb. Uh, mall security robots uh, go on the rampage, uh, killing horny teenagers. And it's on Peacock, uh, we should say. So it's very easy to watch. It is yes, on Peacock. Um, and I just, you know, want to wrap this segment up by saying, as we do at the every at the end of every segment, I'm sorry, it's not you, Ferdy. I guess I'm just not used to running around a shopping mall in the middle of the night being chased by killer robots. <laughs> as we say, every age old adage. Uh, okay, so for Katie, I, I don't think I remember being super involved in this choice. <laughs> uh, I think Patches is really steering the ship here. Immediately but, disowning. Uh, okay. No, because I, I mean, this is a movie. This is a movie that I think anyone of taste uh, when I think Katie belongs in that category for but the most part. Paper, big asterisk. Remember. For the most part. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, 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 we'll get there. Um, would appreciate. But on paper, Katie is not a particularly avid fan of anime. Um, you know, it doesn't have any foxes that need to be caught. Uh, it doesn't. What is some oh. other bullshit she likes? Uh, I was thinking it, it was the Fantastic Mr. Fox because we yeah. were on animation. I was like, wait, hang on. Um, oh, what was, yeah, it doesn't have like uh, Koji Okusho cleaning toilets, uh, you know, all the shit that the <laughs> Fighting about Perfect up. Days is coming. Don't worry yeah. about it. Um, all the bitch shit that she loves. All the Perfect Days will take over Foxcatcher any day. But we're getting besides the point here. <laughs> So, uh, I, you know, we, we wanted to, to force Katie to watch an anime. We've threatened on this podcast before, I believe, to make Katie watch Neon Genesis and, Evangelion. And this came up. Just we, uh, out of a sadistic pleasure. This is, this of, is yeah. confirmation. That and we, how funny it would be if we forced her to start with, like, the end of Evangelion or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Um, we could have gone into all, all like the a, other directions on, like, Dragon Ball Super Broly or something and just watch complete anime shit yeah but, uh, but i i would but you wouldn't have wanted same. to do that like but isn't the idea is finding something i can connect to and yes. therefore you picked one yeah. about I mean, like an not, old this episode uh, was not rooted studio. in sadism correct um you know and, and i think <laughs> Even Dave's pick was, the pick for dave was as close as we got and he enjoyed dirty harry so um <laughs> we didn't succeed on that front but uh we picked when when, when the topic turned to anime i can't remember who mentioned satoshi Kon's millennium actress but I do remember either thinking or and or saying that that 
would be a great pick for Katie because I think it is a not first and foremost a genuinely phenomenal film, um, but one that I think speaks to Katie's interest in filmmaking and in movies about show business and you know films about films, um, which this is. This is you know, Satoshi Kon, R.I.P. Uh, left us too soon. One of the greatest animators ever. Um, he made a film that was sort of his big follow-up to Perfect Blue uh, that was loosely based on the lives of iconic Japanese actresses Satsuko Hara and Hideko Takamine um, and is sort of about an actress in her dotage on her deathbed uh, reflecting on the roles that she had played over the years and a certain man who had gotten away um, and her memories begin to, as they often do in a Satoshi Kon film where the lines of reality are never particularly set you know they're never particularly uh rigid they're all permeable dreams and fantasy and reality and whatnot um has anyone seen paprika or perfect blue or paranoid agent or really anything he made would be able to tell you uh her the roles that she played in the movies that she was in begin to blur together with her memories from her personal life and create this sort of this one um narrative that supersedes them both um and uh, I think it's a beautiful film. I will admit, mostly because of my coughing kid who shares the name of the famous Neon Genesis Evangelion character, I was not able to revisit Millennium Actress this week. I've actually only seen it cover to cover, front to back, once wow. uh, around the time it came out and remember it in my mind, wow. sort of uh, coalescing into this like perfect masterpiece yeah. that I have not wanted to revisit for that reason. Um, and so many of what of the films, not that there were that many that Satoshi Kon made before his death, uh, sort of took on a holy sort of eminence to them. Um, now that I knew he wouldn't be, wouldn't be able to make any more, although I've seen perfect blue many times. Um, but, uh, yeah, I felt this was a movie that the Katie would uh, have a better shot with than most anime. Um, <laughs> and I'm very curious yeah. to hear how it went. Yeah, I think you were totally right that it was something that was going to give me a better shot. Like you start with like it being a film studio being torn down. I'm like, okay, I understand where we are and what we are doing. Not that I think that like all anime is uh, Neon Genesis. Even like, it, the, I, like I know that there are many, many different genres that can be covered by this style of animation. But I had never seen one before that was specifically set in the film industry. And as I was watching it, I kind of felt like I like a bunch of pieces fell into place of how this movie has influenced people over the last 20 years. Like on Letterboxd, I mentioned Nolan, which I think people say his movies are more like Paprika, which I haven't seen, but they kind sure of that are. idea of like, that is an accurate of, uh, like timelines <laughs> colliding with each other and editing back and forth and kind of the, uh, the like levitating thrill of like watching somebody pull that off that I knew from Nolan movies obviously really comes from this too. And you know, the moment early on where like suddenly they're on a train that crashes and then there's a witch there and I'm like, what the fuck? Why is there a witch mm -hmm. here? And then you kind of like figure out how this puzzle box is coming together. And it's pretty incredible to watch. Um, the animation is beautiful. Like it, like in the way that it's jumping between realities, but just in these like really like still moments where it captures like light on a floor and you're kind of like gazing at it and wondering like how, <clears throat> they managed to capture something that delicate in this like you know well done animation but like you know it's not supposed to be photorealistic but then all of a sudden it does look like that i wore out a little bit on the structure sort of in the middle like when the when the tripping through movies kind of first started where it's like they get somewhere they're in a different period she's in this world she's still looking for this thing and the camera guy's like hello i'm here to save you and then it kind of resets over and over again i kind of felt like all right 
let's get to where this is going. But I think it builds to somewhere really remarkable. And I wonder if for you guys, it is an asset to the story that the plot is so simple. It's this woman. She's an actress. She met a man in the before World War II. Uh, he, she has his key. She never sees him again. She spends literally the entire rest of her life questing after him. And that's about it. Like there's a little side plot about another actress at the studio, but like she is so singularly driven. And the whole idea is like getting at the bottom of that drive and what it meant to her. But like it made the plot feel really thin compared to all the chaos going on around it. And I think obviously you need something pretty simple to follow when there's so much busyness happening. Um, but I wonder a, if that's like a common thing in anime where like kind of the the visuals and the structure can kind of take precedence over the plot and if that felt like more of an asset to you guys where i got to got to the end i was like i get the visual metaphor this is beautiful but like i wish i had a little bit more to hang on to i don't know if that is a common element of anime it might be a common element of satoshi Kon's films the limited filmography there david you said this was a masterpiece i think it's a pretty great film but amazingly, like Satoshi Kon has only made a few movies and they're all really, really good. This might be his like lesser achievement because uh, I think Paprika is amazing. and I think Perfect Blue is amazing. I think Tokyo Godfathers is a wonderful film um, and and all exploring like the intersection of, of media and, and real life and the refraction of, of fiction. Um, they all have very similar themes. And I, I was taken in trying to. I hadn't really read about the making of this movie very much. I rewatched, this is a rewatch for me, but uh, that Satoshi Kon refers to this as a, an attempt to, to make a cinematic trompe l'oeil that, you know, the French hyper real optical illusion. Is that how you say yes, that? Yes, trompe l'oeil. I, I, I actually know. looked this up because I thought I'd be ridiculed on the podcast. Uh, I still will be probably, but. Um, <laughs> trompe O'Leal is a, what happens in my head when right, I Right, but that. you have to watch the pronunciation videos to really go that extra Yeah, I'm not very smart, here. it's fine. <laughs> and we know that Patch just spends all of his free I time do. watching pronunciation videos. <laughs> just fact, so can ensure that it's misinformation, so I'm just pretty wrong most of the time. Um, <laughs> anyway, just the, the idea of like creating optical illusion in movies and like Obviously, the Trump lawyer is, the, is creating 3D optical illusion out of 2D art. Uh, and, and I guess in this one, he's, the idea here is that space and time create that illusion. As we mentioned, like there's a documentary crew filming her and they start appearing in her own memories and like bumping into her. And there's a lot of intersection there. Uh, to your point, it reminds me of Avatar or a lot of the conversations we have about James Cameron trying to keep it as simple as possible to do this technical achievement. I think that is part I definitely of the experiment that. Yeah. here that uh, to to create fluidity, you have to have something so simple to anchor you to back to reality. And I still think it, it becomes complex because the main act or the, the character Chiyoko is, is voiced by different people at different times and, and she's ebbing and flowing through her own age. Uh, yeah, there's just a lot of dynamic uh storytelling happening here so all you can do is like oh right it's always in service of i just want to find this man i just want to like get the key um it's it's very very simple almost by the end i was like is it gonna is it this simple do i misremember but no it's just it's really just that one thing she has to do and then when she discovers i don't want to spoil it too much but like yeah, that's it. And you went for the ride. It's Martin Scorsese hates a ride, but yeah. it's, it's just a ride. You know, it's just like a Marvel movie. No, I, wow. Let me, yeah, let me but I think Martin Scorsese certainly knows 
Scorsese certainly knows the power of a story Absolutely. where the what the person thinks that they're going after is not actually the thing that they're going after. And it was the journey all along, which is a really powerful. It's also a testament. It's just like, let's end. celebrate film, Japanese film. Like, let's have a yeah. kaiju movie. Let's have like a samurai movie. Or, like, sometimes you just want to celebrate. And, and that's cool, too. Like, paprika is very much. Let's yeah, just have lots of wild, imaginative. Like everything is possible in the animation medium. I feel like Satoshi Kon is really good at this, having a human yes. element at the very core and then pushing animation as far as it could possibly go to make sure you understand why to vindicate the medium itself. Yes, uh, all of his all of his work was set in the real world and yet s did subtly at first and then less so as is growing on things to sort of um defile the reality of that world in ways that were sort of psychologically probing, um, revealing. And then by the time you're getting to Paprika and he's playing with dreamscapes, it's all very, um, you know, it's all very fluid. But uh, that was sort of his signature for sure. I like it. I like how simple it is. Uh, there's uh, this element in animation that some anime takes uh, advantage of, which is just you could draw whatever the fuck you want. This one is so simple and direct about what it is illustrating and when as we progress through, you know, not only this actress's life, but in every time we're dipping into a movie, uh, the other actress and the uh, scarred interrogator show up as like uh, some sort of character within that that transitions us back into reality. The documentarian who eventually we realize is personally involved sort of jumping in to save her and then it turns out he actually did one time jump in to save her. I think using all of those things to build these very specific, almost fairy tale like characters really pays off uh, for Millennium Actress. And just like, yeah, I haven't seen a ton of Japanese cinema, but I've seen enough to be like, oh, we're in this era. Oh, I know yeah. what's like this is supposed to be going on here. Uh, so seeing those characters reflected uh, across the different uh, memories of cinema was really interesting to me because it all felt like uh, things that deserve to be illustrated. And when it sort of like stepped out of realism for a second, like when she eventually happens across a painting that is perfectly lined up with her moon uh, set and then the painting sort of comes to life but remains lined up with the moon set in the back. I'm just like, this is graphically great storytelling. Um, uh, so I'm, 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 I agree that it's simple, but I never got tired of actually watching it. Yeah. I thought the music was really beautiful it, in this film too. The Susumo Hirasawa score. He worked with Satoshi Kon all the time, but like, I don't know. It's, we, we spend a lot of time. I think we have on this podcast talking about Western animation, American animation being just for kids and kind of bubbly and dumb. And then you watch animation from Japan, like these big features with such craft and uh, I think overlooked is is the music. And, you know, Miyazaki has been a long time collaborator with Joe Isachi and I might probably mispronouncing that. But uh, all this piano music, all this all this dream score and like synthy stuff. I, I thought the music in this movie rocked, too. And it's like part of yeah, the psychology beautiful. And it's there's so many layers here. There's just so much more going on than even a typical. I mean, trying to do this in live action. I don't know. If, I don't think you could. And that's what's cool about this movie. You can't do it in live action, I think. 
Yeah, uh, I think that, like, yeah, the thing that you guys are kind of asking me to confront with this, that, like, I have thought about it many times, is, like, watching international cinema is not a problem for me. Like, I don't have a point where it's like, I can't read subtitles. But, like, animation in a style that is not what I am used to always has this extra barrier for me. And that counts with, like, American, um, you know, made products, Why do you too. think that is? Like, I don't watch... I don't know. I don't this know why. This is a big why. problem like, for other people, too. I, never, I mean... Like, I've never got into BoJack Horseman, even though people <laughs> said it was good, just because like, I didn't really like looking at it. Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm relieved to know that it's not just me. And like, it's not, it, it doesn't feel like a snobby thing. It's just this no. like, gut level, like, oh, that's not for me. And it's obviously not true, but I, it, I find it harder to get over than many other like genre or other associations. Have, have you ever met a person? I know someone like this who is like, I will not watch fiction films i will not read fiction that sounds books. depressing like they only want to watch documentary or thing they like i think this came up because i was like oh do you watch game of thrones is the biggest thing on the planet i would never watch game of thrones why would i invest time in something that is not real and that's i mean that's like a whole different well it seems really different life. but i actually think it's almost on the same wavelength as people were like well i want to see people when I watch movies and that's what the aversion to animation often is like, it's an unconscious barrier for you with Bojack Horseman being like, you can't bring yourself to watch animation in that way. That's I'm not yeah. saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying, yeah, I genetically inclined to no, want to see it's, human it, faces. It's, it's like, it's like, well, yeah, it's li well, like I watch animation with my kids, but like, I they kind of have like different expectations for that, you know? Uh, I don't know. I have like, oh, I have weird barriers around it. And like, you show me things like Millennium Actress and maybe that helps take it down. So nah. well done. <laughs> I do want to watch Paprika now. You, oh, you definitely, like, you I definitely do. I will, active, I will actively insane. see You got to watch it. Your um, kids would like it, I think. I, I will take every opportunity, <laughs> including this one, to implore people out there or people in here on this podcast to watch what I consider to be Satoshi Kon's masterpiece which is his television show, which was mm. a miniseries. It was not particularly long. I think it's 13 episodes called Paranoia Agent. Uh, I'm just Googling it to find out where you can watch it. I think it's on Amazon Prime and, of course, Crunchyroll. Uh, it is completely absorbing, unlike anything you've ever seen. Um, I, I mean, the closest parallel, just because it's an easy one, could be used to reference to so many different things and often is, uh, would be Twin Peaks, maybe. But... Um, that that is still way off the mark, uh, but it's it, it may sound like more of an investment than sitting down and watching Paprika, but uh, I think you would get even more out of it in not a great leap to similar period of time. Um, love Paranoia Agent, Katie. To to well, wait, I I have one more yeah. factoid before we completely wrap up here, and this is important because Katie, this movie came out in two thousand one, I think in Japan and in the U.S., um, and so it was eligible for the first ever. Uh, animated oh, yeah. Oscar. It did not get nominated for the Oscar, but here are the three other movies because I think you'll want to know this that did get nominated. Oh, I know Shrek, Shrek one. one. I know, yeah. but do you, can you name the other two? Mm -hmm. Actually, A little trivia: Monsters Inc. Monsters Inc. And one more movie better than Millennium Actress, more worthy of the Oscar nom. Is it like Stallion Spirit it's of the Summer? Jimmy or Neutron something? Boy Genius. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're gonna start going to war I'm with not, the uh, animated hey. category, like it started, it started then. I haven't seen that movie somewhat uh, since then. No, I haven't either. Actually, it's, it's worthy. Who's to say? 
I mean, I got another movie about a boy genius we could talk about if you uh, want to stay in that line. Oh, oh, oh Wait, no what? transition. <laughs> I guess he's not really a genius. No, I don't think I'd put Just him in the average, genius Just an average category. smart child. trying to come up with a movie that patches would not like on paper my initial instinct was to go the uh, faith-based route because a uh, soul surfer continues to haunt did. us uh, all these years say. later uh but it was hard to find one like i wasn't gonna make you watch a kirk cameron apocalypse thing like that Thank didn't you. really seem that fun to talk about um but then you kind of tapped into the, the part of you that has fixated on the uh, kid in the framed photo from the robocop remake um for <laughs> all these years like adorable children just getting under your fucking skin and we talked about my dog skip on our last oh order well so what like what is wrong with me you do have a trend developing here um but you flagged the movie wonder which i had seen already it came out in 2017 it stars jacob tremblay i my guess son. this was his big room follow-up um your your son i i don't remember where that started that's sort of this podcast or is that somewhere separately no <laughs> Good joke. Uh, but yeah this it's is creepy. him this is him with his like heat from being in room uh it's based on did Trump, like, get nominated for room no but he probably came really oh my close God. <laughs> like he was he was all over the place um so it's based on this young adult novel that had come out in 2012 it's got a pretty damn starry cast uh julia roberts and owen wilson play his parents uh very early in the film mandy patinkin shows up and calls himself mr tokus and i'm like great how could anyone not like this movie <laughs> um and it's but it's pretty sappy like the entire oh, oh, yeah. like point of the movie is about uh seeing and seeing from other people's point of view uh it starts with the experience of um august yes august um who uh just was born with a lot of things going on in his body and required a lot of surgery and therefore his face looks different from other kids and... collins syndrome i believe oh wow i do they actually it's say that out loud in the movie i, I kind of missed that part don't know but that might be pulling from the book it's based on a book by yeah. rj Pelleccio, i believe uh mm -hmm. yes he he has he's had 27 different surgeries yeah, um i saw this movie in 2017 i don't remember when or why and i guess i was newly apparent so maybe i was susceptible and then i watched this with charlie famed moviegoer charlie i think this movie oh, is super wow. appropriate for kids actually yeah this is super this is inappropriate yeah i mean he's this like charlie with my five-year-old but i definitely could have i, I would have felt good about that yeah he like might i mean like, the content is completely fine like he's kind of even the younger end of like relating to a lot of it like it's a lot right. about the like, problem the is charlie wanted to bully like the kid and he was yelling yes he obviously did. <laughs> it's like look at that face charlie, i don't want to hit that face and, like, Mom, can i hit the face i i will <laughs> say this and recognize that it like fits right into how this movie works and i swear it is true i asked him what he thought of it and he said I kind of felt like I was going to cry at a lot oh of times in this Lord. movie. And I was like, they gotcha. Tremblay got you. And like, <laughs> I was doing the same thing. I'd like, I'm a sucker for this movie, but I really want to know what patches and his deep seated aversion to children. It's not a deep seated aversion to children. I don't, I don't think I have interest <laughs> or, or a capacity for the tear jerker. Like, I don't like being jerked around sure. in that way. If someone's going to jerk me around, it better be Lars von Trier, like dragging me across the coals or something. I don't. <laughs> Really, went on with a leash yeah, I don't really want to. I, I don't know. I, I would never have seen this movie. Um, I don't. 
I, and I, it's not necessarily the greatest revelation of this movie, which I had a good time watching, is that I actually don't think it's too manipulative. Maybe you would all disagree with that, but there's definitely like it could have been so much sappier and it could have been so much more of a Hallmark mm -hmm. movie. It does kind of still feel like a faith based film without the faith. Maybe the faith is humanity in this case. Um, the faith is uh, the is faith. empathy. Uh, what a horrible <laughs> thing to teach children to believe yeah. in. Uh, but what, <laughs> I think that the movie gets really right. And it's interesting how many people have fingerprints on this. If, if you read about the film, it was directed by. Steven uh, Chabowski, who did um, uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower, a movie I don't really care for, that I think he, has a super cult he following. He wrote it oh, and right, then the directed novelist. the movie, which right. is a wild thing to have done. Um, and He directed a movie pretty recently, too. I don't remember uh, it was, was called, uh, it was a musical, uh, a great musical oh, film. Oh, Evan Hansen. You're Evan Hansen. He's probably oh, not guy. taking that assignment, but that was a hard one. Um, so Chabowski directs this, I think this is as his like perks of being a wallflower follow up. And that movie, where do people fall in that one? That's for like culty, I think. That like if you, if you were the right age, my... it's your jam. Yeah, not my jam. Yeah, I missed out on that one. I was not. Yeah, I don't remember that movie all that we well. Had, we had it. Garden State, maybe, and other people had perks of being a wallflower sure. or something. <laughs> um, but I, I kind of expected that to, to be trying to understand the kids and, and it feeling more sappy and like feelingsy but what i'll give this movie a lot of credit i like the kind of every person's perspective way in so if people are familiar with the, the story augie is 10 and you know he's dealing with facial deformity and now he's finally going to go to fifth grade i was a little confused uh He's in fifth grade, right? But they're talking about middle school a lot, I guess, because these kids are yeah, about I think some, to go to middle some school. In or... some places, in some places, uh, like middle school is like fifth through eighth. This is know. getting way in it's the weeds and it's obsessed a weird with the wrong things. Festival. But like when you guys were in fifth grade, did you go to different classes for different subjects? I had one teacher. We went to, we would go to the other fifth grade <laughs> teacher for some stuff. Oh, really? There was a little bit of that. I just had one yeah. guy. Okay, well. Now I feel left out. <laughs> I mean, I, I also had one fifth grade teacher, but sixth grade, we went around to the things. Oh, yeah. So sixth grade, I started If you just expand around. it a little bit, it's fine. You, the, you, the things I don't know about private school in New York City uh, could fill several books. Yes. Anyway, Augie's going to fifth grade, and he's finally interacting with other children his age. And he's getting bullied, as you can imagine, but he's also making friends, and it's very sweet. But what the book may do, and I'll never know this because I'm not going to read it, but what Jabosky does is start bouncing around, not just from Augie's perspective, but they explore his sister, who uh, she's in high school and she's facing just a tough time from not having her parents' attention most of the time. The parents, who are played just delightfully by Julia Roberts and Owen Wilson, who I loved them in this movie. I'm like, you're so relatable and you're so in love. And later in the movie, Julia Roberts' character goes back and finishes her master's thesis and she finishes it and they're drinking wine and they're like, I want to fuck you after 9.30 p.m. And I'm like, fuck yeah, let's go. I just love it. It is like pure undistilled star power where you put like two yeah. giant charismatic movie stars and you're like, I care about the parents. You would never care about the parents in a, a story total like this. Pleasure. Anyway, you know, they're not giving their daughter much time of the day. They have to focus so much on Augie for obvious reasons. And I don't, I think it's kind of daring for the movie to explore 
like what if the kid with facial deformity is commanding all of your parents attention how do you other person in the family feel and she's going through so many emotions her her like there's a lot of room and economy of storytelling in, in wonder to to let us know what her best friend was up to she went to camp and she's going to get her own side story within the in the movie to tell us why she's feeling really bad about life and she actually was really connected to this family and drifted away because her parents are having breakup. Because she catfished somebody with that whole story. She catfished the whole camp. <laughs> she did uh, what she had to do. But anyway. Well, Dave never got the, he didn't get the empathy lesson from this movie. And then, yeah. I mean, I get the empathy lesson, but if this happened in 2017, the fuck you could catfish somebody with an Instagram account? I mean, the they're a camp. They don't mind have somebody phones. With it. Oh, I mean, maybe that's just the wonderfulness of can. Anyway, no, sorry. The, go ahead, so the sister gets a lot of time, and we and we see her perspective and how she's feeling about being kind of alienated or or off to the side in her own family. And then we get Augie's friends and like how they're feeling. His bully. We get a little of his story. We get uh, oh, what's his name? Noah Jupe is in this movie playing Noah the best Jupe. friend, uh, Jack best Will, kid actor great in the game. name, Jack Will. Uh, and and we see like <laughs> what's going on in his home, how he ends up being assigned to help Augie in the beginning and was like, there was trepidation there over helping this new kid, this quote unquote freak, like, oh, what's it gonna mean for my social status at school? And then actually he's great and I wanna be his friend, but they have miscommunication and break up and like, there's just a lot of emotions flying around and the smartest decision that this movie makes is it's just, it's it can never get too sappy. We're not in one place for long enough and we get to feel everybody's warranted emotions at those given, times i think the dumbest thing is the, the kind of like fantastical nature of augie's dreams about like being an astronaut i don't need that's when this movie is really trying to you to didn't, you didn't think they, they needed to pay to put chewbacca in this there's movie? a lot of well, stuff did, uh, Wars in here but the, uh, you know it's, what? it's a like fox Star movie was it a fox what disney movie i wondered this it is not it say, it's uh, a lionsgate release oh so oh, i wondered okay. how yeah i thought this was just some like handy uh chewbacca literally showing up and being like, rawr, rawr, yeah, foggy. Um, yeah, that was a blip of Yoda there. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, I got that. We're all we're all dancing around the most important <laughs> okay. part of this movie, though. What is it? Um, and I'm just waiting for an opportunity to jump in here. What is it? Looking at Augie is a outspoken fan of the New York Rangers. Oh, I- he is one <laughs> of cinema's. <laughs> he is one of cinema's great Rangers fans. Uh, it's something I've always I noticed more Mets memorabilia. Him and Robbie. To be honest, I didn't really well, get enough Rangers out of this film. I mean, I agree. I didn't get enough Rangers out of this. That's true. Most movies, uh, with could. the exception of Mystery Alaska, <laughs> which is too much fake Rangers for, and suggests that Russell Crowe could, his team of Alaskan randos, could actually compete with an NHL team. It's absurd. It's absurd. It's absurd on its face, David E. Kelly. Fuck you. Um, as if I have not suffered enough indignity as a Rangers fan to watch them tie Russell Crowe <laughs> and Mystery Alaska. Uh, anyway, shout out to my boy Augie. See you at the garden. Did, uh, <laughs> yeah, if, go, Dave. If we do a reverse of this quarter quell where we're trying to pick uh, things that are maybe good on paper that we'll absolutely hate, you could pick Wonder for me. Mm. I, I understand this movie needs to exist, and structurally it holds up incredibly well. I will co-sign everything about the charismatic actors bringing like these uh, soap opera level emotions to a somewhat realistic uh, level. Uh, but man, did I not like watching this movie while it was happening. <laughs> Which, what was grating on you? Because this is how I thought 
I would feel. And I will say it doesn't get off to a good start. There's a lot of Augie voiceover being like, oh, yes. wow, what's it going to be like when I'm in fifth grade? I have a You're lot. You're talking of- like Owen Wilson oh, pretending wow. to be a kid. Augie, yeah. you're going <laughs> to school. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, I, I think uh, when it switched to the sister's perspective and she can't tell the guy she likes that she has a brother, she's like, I'm an only child. I'm like, fuck this wow. movie. I know how this, I know, I know how all of this goes. I know what's going to happen to the bullies. I know it's going to, ha- you know, what's going to happen to this girl. And then like maybe 15 minutes later, we get to Halloween and there's the big misunderstanding uh, where Jack will uh, has to shit talk Augie in front of uh, other friends and doesn't notice because uh, Augie's dog uh, is still alive at this point in the movie and uh, vomits over his Boba Fett costume, making him be ghost face. And therefore uh, Jack doesn't uh, remember until like months later. And then Summer's like ghost face. He's like, oh, my God, I was an asshole. I, I don't believe it. <laughs> I know this is how story arcs work. I could feel it. Like, I'm not mad at Jack Thorne, but also, like, fuck. I, like, watching movies. The, the problem I have with sentimentality is sentimentality where you don't have some sort of risk involved uh, really just gets really saccharine sweet for me. So the dog dying isn't enough at stake for me. Augie deciding he wants to be homeschooled for the rest of his life and his mom doesn't get to write her thesis that's not a high enough stake for me they they all live in a brownstone they're fine um uh, like i i i there wasn't enough at stake I, for me to take the minor the the feelings of people i, I totally agree with you mm. and yet here's where the movie mm. goes right which is it has no stakes we know everything will be that augie will be accepted that the family will be hugging it out, that everyone will be clapping for him and he will succeed. And that, you know, looks don't matter. It's all about who you are on the inside, blah, blah, blah. We all know the the moral compass of this movie from the get-go. We all know that we'll be celebrating it at the end. But I do think the movie has these kind of like, um, like what is the dramatic version of a microaggression where um, like David Diggs <laughs> gets up in the front of the class and gives his best uh yeah dead uh dead poet society mini speech to fifth graders like that was getting under my skin when uh when a teacher gives a good little speech it i get worked upon or when julia roberts and the daughter again i was really caught up in the daughter's story more than more than almost oh, augie yeah, here <laughs> where like she's becoming a theater nerd oh okay i guess i'm into this like and I mean, when you get our town involved, uh, it's like town. napalm. You're like, yeah, how dare <laughs> you bring our town into Julie this? Roberts has a fight with her. And this is where like, having an actor of Robert's caliber in this movie goes to great lengths. Like, that really, that was scary. Like, when they're fighting and she's like, I don't even get out of the room, Owen Wilson. We're going to have a fight. Um, that just, I don't know, sent me back to my youth yelling at my own parents for reasons i don't even think, about, you anymore. think about your it just, future teenage daughter yeah, i just it, it's it's so grounded and and micro and that stuff stirred me more than the kind of oh augie you had a great science fair everyone loves you um it's funny how much this movie is obviously about him and overcoming that challenge but there's so many more dynamics at play 
you know, him reconnecting with Jack Will after this Halloween incident and like how they become friends again. That really made that I thought that was sweet. Like this movie, and this is what Steven Chabowski seems to be good at, according to people who like Perks of Being a Wallflower, is like really good at friendship. And this movie has a lot of mm-hmm. solid depictions of young friendship. I have to give a shout out too to uh this girl Millie Davis, the his friend who he meets after Jack Will, who's like, hey, I just nobody likes me either let's be friends and i legitimately want to be your friend she is on this show that i'm trying to convince katie to show her children uh called the odd squad and she is like a prodigy i think she's like just a fantastic comedic and dramatic i guess and wonder presence uh she could be a huge star she's great in this movie um i think the whole cast is just shooting so much higher than you would expect from again what should be saccharine schlock chopping mall but for people who just want a weepy <laughs> i feel like that's the key to the very end too where you get to the awards awards and it's like ah and then there's one last award and you're like oh i bet it's gonna go to augie and then fucking mandy patinkin shows up to give this heartfelt speech and you're like okay there is a scene i believe you mandy patinkin like he's just like dunking on the rim in that room and be like yeah you know i can do this it's, again interesting how much room this movie has in it and i don't think it's a slog at any point uh there's probably one too many Fist fights in this movie, which is a weird criticism, <laughs> but like I don't need to see kids continuously fight to understand their differences. Um, but to your point about Manny Potemkin, there's a scene where he plays the principal, and one of the kids bullying Augie writes just like a intense for he like photoshops out Augie from their class photo and then writes like kill yourself on the back and gets caught, and everyone rats him out. And then there's a scene with him and his parents sitting down with Mandy Patinkin. Like, these are not the main bench characters here. This is like the supporting cast all to room for their own scene that I thought was pretty scary and intense. And like, Mandy Patinkin feels so bad for this kid. This movie has a real understanding and empathy for the, the child perspective and predicaments. Um, and these parents are kind of douchebags trying to defend their kid and find excuses for why he would bully Augie. Uh, and I, th- I thought that was really touching and interesting too. Uh, and I, what else? Did what you other movie could see the sequel that, that was released this not. year that was focused David, on that character? You, wait, I don't think this movie has come out. White Bird starring Helen Mirren? No, apparently it did come no, out. I was looking on the was, Wikipedia page. The trailer was in theaters over the summer and then it was delayed uh, because of the strikes. Oh, mm. they need oh, Helen okay. Mirren promotion. So it focuses... That little kid who Mandy Patinkin uh, tries to stop from learns his parents taking him out of school, bullying. but he learns the lesson. That actor is returning to reprise his role in this movie, White Bird, where a wonder story. he goes to Paris. I assume. Yeah, he goes to Paris and is told by his grandmother about her experiences hiding from the Nazis. So not only are you going to feel bad for him a little bit more, <laughs> we're taking it all the way back. We're going to be bat- to mad at Nazis. A fascinating David, departure. did you watch Wonder? I have not watched Wonder recently, but I am reading my review. This is the only <laughs> one of the four films we're covering tonight that I have reviewed. And uh, so what did you say the first the line is, Wonder is as manipulative as movies get, but that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Okay, I can, mm-hmm. I can agree with you. Yeah, that feels about right. Wow. What do you think wow. is the most manipulative part of Wonder, Dave? You probably felt this too much. Oh, really? It's it's Where when you just our get town. to give speeches yeah, just from our town. 
Yeah, it's just like, oh, like, what do we need to sell this emotional moment? Oh, the ending of Our Town, like one of the most famously, <laughs> like, wrenching moments in theater. I mean, it works, but that feels just like a not hey, a cheap shot, but it's easy. Julia Roberts watching her daughter do Our Town is the moment that I teared up yeah, a little bit. Too. Not full on cried, you but know, that was you, the moment when she's like, with Our Town. she steals the glass. Apparently, both parents wear the same fucking glasses <laughs> prescription. really that cute. She steals the glasses uh, so she could watch it. And that was like the moment. Also, that afterwards, got the to when they like in. greet her and Julia Roberts just like puts her hand to her chest, like she doesn't really say anything that got me. Yeah. But uh, I think the most manipulative thing that this movie does is casting Julia Roberts. Really? Because <laughs> we yeah. like her? What do you th- As basically like the she's like the author standing character the author is also a children's oh. illustrator who eventually moved up to write her own novel and whatever mm. and so like the the fact that you think it's about augie at the beginning and then the first character we spin off to is the sister and then the more and more we spin off it's actually about how the rest of the family is like they say at the very beginning so i don't know why i was fucking surprised orbiting around the sun that is Augie mm-hmm. and then all that you need at the end is for Augie to be like thanks for sending me to school mom and Julia fucking Roberts to be like you're a wonder Augie and I'm like fuck fuck I hate that this works <laughs> and this only works because it's Julia fucking Roberts the, I hate it yeah she has a power and she knows how but to do use you think, it you don't think yep. uh, Tremblay makes the movie well you don't think the movie works but do you do we like Tremblay I, in no this? I think Tremblay's He's doing a great job. Um, the part is as such, and the prosthetics are as such. I feel like it could have been other people. There's like this is this is no Doctor Sleep where it needs Katie to be hates Jacob Tremblay. Actor, so this is no room. Definitely want to hear her where it needs to be Jacob Tremblay. I don't or hate- like even cast a person with that actual disability because it's no. an easy. It seems like an easy part to play. If I you think that be well, to get along who with knows? Other but I will say my nitpick is in researching the the condition or the the uh, syndrome uh they they definitely hollywoodized the look of his deformity i think they could have it could have been more severe or like they sanded down the, the edges mm. there he still has like a hollywood look to him in this movie and i'm not sure that's necessarily totally accurate but i get wanting to i mean prosthetically you know who knows what they were able to achieve here it looks pretty good um I don't hate kid actors. I always think they should be in school and think that fame is actual poison for kids. And so like when Jacob Tremblay was all over the Oscar campaign trail for Room, I was like, let this child go home. Let him take off a tuxedo. Let him be a kid for a little while. Um, but at the same time, Noah Jupe has always been the one kid actor. I'm like, that kid's going places. Like he's great in Honey Boy <laughs> and he's great in Ford v. Ferrari. Like he's like every time he's been in something, I've been like, oh yeah. And like, I forgot he was in this. And now I'm looking up like he's like, almost 18 yeah, he is like he's gonna be like now. a like grown-up actor soon so i'm very interested to see what he's up to he's gonna go away he's for a while too. and then he's gonna come back and be like whoa no juke he's back as an adult i hope he gets <laughs> to grow up and have a normal teenage life i would be very happy for him if that happens but i, I think tremblay has a kids. long-term career ahead of him or do you think are you all fully on the jupe I don't know about Tremblay. Uh, I mean, he's certainly like famous in a way that like very few actors in age so? are. But like, Good Boys didn't Good Boys make a ton of money? Yeah, but that wasn't the last thing he was in. Wasn't he a voice? Uh, Jacob Tremblay is—he just turned seventeen. Good God, I know. <laughs> Lights, he's camera, like, Tremblay. Oh, he's—he's he's in the Toxic Avenger. 
sure. Is that live oh, action? No, good for him. Oh, yeah, that just played fantastic. Maybe he had so much fun getting torn to ribbons in Doctor Sleep that he wanted another opportunity. Yeah. Let, let him do horror if that's what he wants to do. That sounds good. Good luck to all child actors, to all the wonders out there who are able to child to all act. All the wonders. Um, but yeah, you, you got all me right. on this one. I, I, I shed a few tears. I had. A, I, I enjoyed it. I'm really, I'm really glad you. I got you. I had a great time watching it as well. And truly, if you have a kid who is like five and up and willing to watch a movie with real people in it, it's a good kid movie. No Titanic. Look, it worked for my family. It might not work for yours. All right. Uh, that's going to be it for this 25 episode run of Fighting in the War Room. 25-ish episode run of Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back next week with more current ridiculousness. Till then, tell the people who you are. Matt Patches. Matt Patches, executive editor of Polygon.com. I'm on Twitter... Letterbox, Blue Sky, it's all Mr. Patches. And uh, we have a website, fightingintheworm.com. I don't think we ever talked about any four of these movies before. If, if we did, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to have overlap. <laughs> I don't think we reviewed Wonder at the time. Um, no. But uh, yeah, you can, if you if you want to check or go back and listen to all our other quarter quells, go to fightingintheworm.com and listen up. David Ehrlich. Uh, that's my name. Uh, I am the film critic at IndieWire. I am very sleepy. I am on all of the things. I was told I was admonished by a listener last week about referring to a certain social media website that has been overtaken by um, Elon <laughs> Musk uh, by its its new name. Um, so maybe as a shout out and a bone to that person, I will avoid doing that. But I'm there. I'm Blue Sky and Letterboxd and Instagram, I suppose, if you just want to look at pictures of my kids. And I wouldn't blame you. They're real cute. Uh, but more importantly, you can find all of us together on iTunes, Fighting in the War Room. We usually start these episodes off by reading our new reviews live in the studio that we share between us over several thousand miles um, on the air. Uh, we didn't do it this week uh, because of our quarter quarter episode. But in the event that we don't get new reviews... We will spend five minutes talking about a mobile game, most likely Marvel Snap. You don't want to hear that. Leave us a review. If you've already left us one, write us another one. Start a new account. It's worth it. Because there's a new season of Marvel Snap starting between now and the time we record our next episode. That's true. Am I going to join the Miss Marvel season? We got to, yeah, we got to figure that out for Dave. (laughs) you can also email us at FITWR at FITWR.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, with any uh, thoughts, reviews, etc. I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on Twitter and Blue Skies DA7E, on threads and Instagram as Grumpy DA7E, but why would you when the non Grumpy version is also out there? And uh, yeah, Katie Rich. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair on the Little Gold Men podcast, where we're still talking about Oscar season and wondering when the strike's going to end. Um, you can find me on uh, mostly Blue Sky, but also still sometimes Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. We're also in both places at F-I-T-W-R, where I want to hear uh, at what point you cried and wonder. We don't have a lightning round question, so just tell me that. Uh, <laughs> thanks for Or watch uh, Chopping Ball. Uh, do you close this out or do I close this out? No, oh, you, could, you could go ahead and close it out. Well, then thanks for listening and we'll be back talking to you next week. Bum, bum.
下。